As we walk through the Gospel of John and as we arrive here, John chapter 5, we have seen people marvel, be amazed at Jesus Christ. We have seen people marvel and be amazed at Jesus' miracles, whether it be him healing the lame or him turning water into wine. What we've seen is that wherever Jesus goes, the supernatural follows and people are astonished. When we come to this passage here in John chapter 5, we're going to see that people marvel, are amazed, and are astonished, not just at his miracles, but at his words as well, at his teaching and the authority with which he brings it. In fact, this is how the gospel of Mark starts as well. Mark chapter 1 verse 22 says this, the crowds, the masses were, quotes, astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as one of the scribes. When Jesus arrives, people are not only amazed by what he can do, they are amazed by what he says. And that should lead us to really pay attention to a passage where just in about 10 or 11 verses, Jesus says three times, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says in verses 19, 24, and in 25. Now, the truth is that every single thing Jesus did, every single, every single thing Jesus said was truth. But what he's trying to do right now is to help us here to perk up and focus on what he's about to say. While everything that Jesus said is truth, as the Bible says, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his being. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. Jesus says everything, and everything that Jesus says is true, but he wants us to really pay attention when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, this is different than the Old Testament prophets, right? The Old Testament prophets would receive a word, a message from God, and they would say to God's people, thus says the Lord. Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus taught, they understood what the implications were of his teaching. And that's where we pick up our story in the Gospel of John. As Jesus was not only healing on the Sabbath, but teaching about the Sabbath, John 5.18 says that the religious establishment at that time in Judaism wanted to kill Christ. They wanted to murder Jesus because of his claims. So yes, their response to Jesus was wrong. When Jesus would teach about his identity as the Son of God, their response was wrong, but their understanding of what Jesus was saying was absolutely right. Because as it says here in verse 18, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus builds upon this truth, and he says, truly, truly. It's as if Jesus is saying, what I'm about to tell you is without contradiction and without error. 
He is about to tell us the truth about truth, the truth about the Father, and the truth about forever. When we hear the words of Christ, we are reminded of this simple truth, and this simple truth has become, oh, so complicated in our secular society. Ready? Everyone ready? This is going to be quite a paradigm shift, and it shouldn't be. Friends, truth is true whether you believe it or not. (laughs) Right? This is not rocket science. Truth is truth whether you agree with it or not, whether you surrender to it or not, whether you want to receive it or not. In fact, the very nature of truth is that it's true all the time and it's true for all people. We can discover the truth. The truth can be revealed to us. But friends, we do not get to create the truth. Truth doesn't come from within us. Truth has been revealed outside of us. Truth comes not just from our own speculation, but from God's revelation. Truth is something rooted in who God is. Yes, he's a loving father, but as any good father would provide and protect, he also is going to speak truth to his children. And that's why we should readily receive it. Because this truth is rooted in the very nature and character of God. Jesus and the truth that he's revealing, including the moral commands of God, God's commands to men and women are just an extension of who he is. And that is why when people reject God's truth, they're not rejecting some religious platitude. They're not rejecting some kind of religious trivia. No, they're in fact rejecting God himself because it's rooted in who he is. So when we say, well, we'll take this about Christ or this about Scripture, but this and 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 that and that and that. No, I don't believe that. What we're actually doing is saying that we are the arbiters of all things true. That we who struggle to get through every day, that sometimes forget the name of where we live and our children. That happens to me all the time. We get to decide what is true and binding and authoritative in the whole universe? Do you see how that's the pinnacle of hubris and pride? No, it's true. The truth of truth is that true is, truth is true. So John MacArthur puts it this way. How many of us agree that two plus two equals four? Not many, many, many of you. <laughs> We're going to do a math lesson instead of a sermon next week. (laughs) Two plus two does equal four. There was an entertainer and a celebrity this week that said, three-year-old babies should probably not be asked at that young age if they're transgender. And then all of a sudden, the entire culture pounced upon him as a bigot filled with hatred. Simple. Three-year-olds should be allowed to be three-year-olds before they're trying to figure out which quote-unquote gender they are. Two plus two equals four. It's just basic math. So there is a disconnect. There is a divide between how we understand 
what is basically and obviously and logically true, and then what is, friends, morally true. Listen to this quote. John MacArthur says this. It's amazing how people can affirm that God is a God of order and absolute precision in everything he does in the natural world, yet, yet this God be unconcerned about the moral world. The scientist in the laboratory operates on the basis that his chemical mixtures are not going to violate a known testable truth, and that if he violates the truth, it will blow the building to bits. Also, the astronauts who blast off into space, they count on, they literally put their lives on the absolute, quote, immutability and accuracy of scientific laws. If God is a God of law and order in the created creation realm, he is not going to say in the moral realm, oh, just do whatever you want, believe anything you want. MacArthur says such inconsistency is actually absurdity. But that reveals our paradox, right? I mean, we're a walking paradox. Let's just be honest. Because people will die on the hill of two plus two equals four. But then all of a sudden, when it gets into how we should live, how we should care for our kids, how we should love our spouses, how we should spend our time, our talent, our treasure, well, this is just a, you know, it's just your beliefs. It's just what you want to believe. And everybody gets to make up their own beliefs. There is a disconnect there. There's a divide there, and we see it not only in our lives, we see it in the lives of our children. As many of you know, I have five wonderful, glorious children, and yes, Annabelle's doing great. Um, she's an absolute dream. I'm telling you, this little girl's getting anything she wants from daddy. She's going to be spoiled rotten. I love my babies, but as you know, babies are often hungry. I got a lot of mouths to feed, and those mouths are always open, squawking, asking for more food. If only I could only feed them three times a day, right? It's three meals plus about 16 snacks. And with those snacks comes times where they want treats. And we know this, not just our kids, but us, that when we eat too many treats and these treats, these sugars, these carbohydrates get stuck on our teeth, what happens was the plaques in the foods, they start to wear down the enamel in our teeth, which is the protecting covering of the tooth. And then if that spreads, it will rot the tooth, lead to pain, and yes, affect your life. So why am I giving us a lesson on dental arts? Because in today's day, we not only struggle with tooth decay, you ready? We struggle with truth decay. You're welcome. You write that down, free of charge. Oh, stop. Truth decay, it's, tr it's true. We love what people are going to tell us to help us feel good. We love to listen to the message of culture and friends, we know that this is in the church too. We love to listen to Bible teachers, preachers, whoever they might be, that just tell us what we want to hear. That never give us a Christ that would challenge us, never give us a Christ that would convict us, never give us a Christ that's different from us. And what happens is all that sugary, fatty food starts to break down the enamel of God's truth in our minds, and then decay starts to happen, not just in the world, but in the, in, the, in the church as well. George Barna did a study back in 2002, and this was you know now 17 years ago, it's hard to imagine, but also right after 9-11, which I think there was a real spiritual revival going on. I can't imagine what this, the findings would be today. But George Barna said this, he said, a three to one margin in culture 
says 64% of people say you get to determine truth for yourself. Only 22% said there's actual moral absolutes. Now, to be honest, without Christ, I'm not surprised by this, but it seeps into the church. The study is revealing because it goes on to say, while born-again Christians are statistically different from non-born-again individuals, the differences were minimal. A minority of born-again Christians believe in absolute truth, and a minority base their moral choices on Scripture. And as Barnes says, youth, teenagers, young people are so much more prone to believe that there is no truth. Truth decay. It's real. It is a constant challenge. And that's why when we come to these passages like this, we are reminded that our God is a God of truth and Jesus loved the truth. The truth about truth is that God speaks truth and our Jesus did not shy from the truth. One person who knew math very well, Blaise Pascal, mathematician and also a devout believer, he said this, truth is so obscure in these times, and he was speaking of his day and age, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Why do many of us experience truth decay? It's because this relativistic ethos of our society is like the air we breathe. We don't even know we're shaped by it, but we are, right? So unless we love the truth, we will be shaped by the falsity and the deception of the world. It will happen, right? So this is why truth isn't just an idea, but truth is personal. Truth points to a person. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. Why does truth claim to have personal convictions over my life, well, because truth has always been personal. It points to the person of Jesus. And this is unique for Christianity, friends. You gotta understand this. Like the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, they say that truth is elusive and hard to find. Muhammad said, I only point to the truth. Buddha died saying, I'm still searching for the truth. And here comes our Jesus that says, I am the truth. Praise God. So Jesus says, that's the truth about truth. What's the truth about the Father? All eyes back on the Bible. Let's look at these verses. And we're going to see that there's a lot here. So we're going to pick up two threads, the truth about the Father, the truth about forever, as Jesus teaches in these verses. So for example, four points, four truths about the Father, that Jesus is imitating the Father in verse 19. It says there, to paraphrase, The son only does what he sees the father doing. In fact, everything the father does, the son is doing. Jesus is imitating the father. Number two, father and son are intimate, as it says in verse 20. To paraphrase, the father loves the son and shows the son all he is doing. Not only is Jesus imitating the father, not only is Jesus intimate with the father, but the father wants to show honor to the Son. Verses 22 and 23 explains that the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son, and anyone who does not honor the Son is not honoring the Father. The, the two are directly connected. Not only honor, but authority. Jesus even says the Father has given 
all authority to the Son in verse 27. Friends, this reminds us, and my goodness, this is as politically incorrect as it gets. God-honoring worship, God-pleasing worship, in fact, the salvation of our souls. Jesus is saying, God-honoring, God-pleasing worship, faith, religion, whatever word you want to use, doesn't happen unless Christ is at the center of it. It doesn't exist. Anything else is an imitation. Not even an imitation, a counterfeit. Jesus makes his relationship, Jesus makes his identity as the Son of God absolutely essential to know Father God and to be saved. So Jesus, our Jesus, he doesn't want to distance himself from God, right? So some of our kids, when they grow up, they want to try and be their own person. They want to try and get their own credit, get their own acclaim, whatever it may be. So some children, they rebel against their fathers. Now, I know none of our children in this church do it, right? So I'm talking about everybody out there. But yeah, some kids rebel against their fathers. Some children try to distance themselves from their fathers. And some children try to straight up outdo their daddies. Say, all right, well, you accomplished this. Look out, buddy, because I'm going to do that. Jesus is not interested in any of this stuff. It's not about him. As the father is honoring him, he wants to honor the father. And this is why we get a great window into the beauty that is the Trinity. Father, son, and spirit loving each other, serving each other. You have a son who wants to live for the glory of his father. I don't know if you remember growing up on the school bus or perhaps in the schoolyard when you would compare your daddies to other kids' daddies. My daddy could totally beat up your daddy. My daddy could totally slam dunk on your daddy, even though the daddy could not jump at all, let's be honest. I heard one story about a schoolyard kid who said, all right, my daddy's a musician, and any time that he writes a song, somebody gives him $50. The next schoolyard kid said, all right, well, my daddy's a poet, and every single time that he writes a poem, somebody gives him $100. The last kid in the schoolyard said, well, I got you all beat. My daddy's a pastor. And whenever he writes words on a piece of paper, it takes eight people to collect all the money. <laughs> Jesus is clearly so in love with his daddy, with his father. He wants the whole world to know. He's not starting something new. As we talked about last week, and if you need last week's sermon to talk about how the Old Testament teaches the divinity and deity and the authority of Christ, pick it up. Go listen to it. This is the message of the whole Bible. The Father loves the Son, and the Son lives to glorify and magnify and love the Father. In fact, that's the glue, right? How many of us have figured out the Trinity? Like, you got it down. Like, you could tweet it out in 30 characters. None of us. There's a mystery there, but just because there's a mystery there, just because it's hard to understand, doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach it as absolute, emphatic, explicit truth, because it does. Father, Son, and Spirit. So when we try to understand the Trinity, or let's try to say maybe predestination or election, where God wants all people to come to a saving knowledge of his Son, yet we are taught to celebrate the fact that he chooses us. We might not understand how this works together, but what's the glue, friends? It's love. The Father loves the Son. Yeah, we might not understand how three are one 
one in person ontology, three in diversity, yet it's good news. The Father loves the Son, and the Spirit wants to exalt the Son, and we are invited to enter into their love for each other and their love for us. As soon as our study of Scripture starts to rob us of our joy or lead us to doubt the Father's love, we need to turn back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah who said, your thoughts, God, are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. I trust in you. Your word never returns void. Isaiah chapter 55. This is the truth of the Father. Jesus also speaks the truth about forever. Okay, so friends, here's what I'm going to really ask. We could talk about how the Bible teaches you to be a better husband and wife and forgiveness and bitterness, finances and everything else. All of that matters. All of it's God's word. All of it's from God himself. How many of us agree when we talk about forever, we understand why Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you. When we're talking about forever, eternity, we really have to pay attention. Jesus is about to break it down for us very clearly. He will say of forever, in verse 21, the son raises the dead and gives life to whoever he will. The son, Jesus Christ, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, no mere Messiah, he is in fact sovereign over life and death. And then verse 24 says this, all eyes in the Bible. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, can we say that together? Hears my word and believes him. Let's say that together. Believes him. Whoever believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25 and 26 explain, when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, they will rise. The Son has life and gives life. And then the last part of this passage, quote, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, those who are dead, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, every single person, regardless of what they might believe, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever, whatever religion they subscribe to, Jesus just said every single soul is going to get resurrected. Every single soul is eternal. The question is, where will that soul spend eternity? It's very serious. Life-changing, eternity-altering truth right now. So, he already said that salvation comes through hearing and believing. Remember? Back in 24, whoever hears my word and believes will have eternal life. But now here in verse 29, he says, those who have done good will resurrect, will rise to life, and those who have done evil will resurrect and, and uh, experience judgment. So how do we understand this? Here's the good news, friends. This is good news. That we are saved by works, but not ours. We're saved by the finish, the final work of Jesus Christ atoning for our sins in a way that we never could, paying the price and penalty of our sin finally and forever on the cross. Because if it wasn't Jesus on the cross, 
if our good deeds could save us, then who by default and by definition is the Savior? That would be us. And we know how jacked up we are. We know how many problems we got. Me as the Savior of myself, my good deeds somehow able to make my dead, decaying, dying body alive forevermore? Come on. No, the clear message is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. But the message is also the book of James. James says it. Faith without deeds is dead. Meaning if we have Christ in our hearts, that before we have eternal life, we have new life, abundant life, with Christ as he dwells. We are now the temple of God itself. If we have Christ in our lives, things should look different. We should be repentant of sin. We should have remorse of sin. We should want to honor God. We should want to study his word. We should have an awareness of God's presence. So yes, on that last day, those who have done good, it won't be what saves them, but it will be a sign that they are saved. That's a huge difference. And those who have done evil do not have the atoning work of Jesus Christ and his blood covering them, and all they have is their evil deeds to condemn them. The truth is, friends, all who trust in Christ, all who believe in Christ, will rise to everlasting life. One of the, uh, the joys of my calling as a pastor, besides proclaiming the gospel, loving God's people, trying to reach the community, all of that, is I get to marry people, and yes, sometimes, unfortunately, tragically, bury people. So at a funeral, when everyone's looking around, grasping for some kind of hope, we can proclaim the gospel. The good news that there is more to life than this life, and that through Jesus Christ, there's everlasting life for all who believe. And sometimes I am honored to officiate and to share the gospel at military funerals. If you've ever been to a military funeral, one of the things that touches my heart and my soul every single time are the taps. You know the taps? A beautiful bugle sound, just reminding us of their service, of the ways they sacrifice for this country. And every time I hear it, it moves me. But you know what moves me even more? Not the trumpet and the bugle of taps, but what 1 Corinthians says at the last trumpet. The last trumpet will sound and the dead will rise. The truth is, Jesus says, that there is no amount of music that can make the dead come alive to everlasting life, no matter how beautiful it may be. There's no medicine that can raise the dead, no matter how beneficial that medicine may be. There's no legislation that can raise the dead. No matter how influential that legislation might be, there is no priest, no prophet, no politician, no prime minister, no pope, no king, no general, no cleric, no monk, no imam that can raise the dead. No, Jesus says, he and he alone has the power to breathe life and everlasting life into our decaying, dying bodies. But not only that, 
bring us to the Father's presence where every single tear will be wiped away. Justice and righteousness will reign forever as all the old things fade away and Jesus has made all things new. Hallelujah. So do you hear it? Do you hear a faint sound? Because one day we'll hear it. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the trumpet will sound. And this is going to be the very truthful reality of all who believe and trust in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, I hope everyone pays attention. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word, and we thank you, God, for the hope that it brings. Yes, Father God, there's some of us this morning that need to turn to turn from sin and to turn from self, to turn from deception and falsehood and return to truth, to want to know the truth, not only about God, but about us. That the message, the good news of Christianity is not try harder and do better. No, it's that we are all deserving of God's right judgment and wrath and the only way to salvation is through belief in Christ Jesus. So God, would you do what you do and what only you can do? I can't do it. As articulate, concise, engaging, as my feeble words might be, I, I, nobody can. But God, we thank you and praise you that you can and you do. Would you use your word now and send your spirit to change people through the grace of your son, Jesus. Friends, if this is you, if you could sense the Lord speaking truth into your heart and you know it's coming from a place of love, would you turn from sin? That sin that maybe nobody knows about. That sin that you say, all right, God, you can have everything else but this. The truth is that it's not helping you. The truth is, is that it's hurting you and keeping you from knowing the Father's love. So would you hand it over to him? Would you turn from it and return to Jesus? Jesus who can forgive. Jesus who does save. And Jesus who has promised to give us everlasting life with our loving Father forever and ever. If you know that this is an important moment for you, I'm going to invite you to pray. Not just pray my prayers, but let this be the echo and desire of your heart as you pray to God. Heavenly Father, 
I don't understand all of this. But I believe it's true. So Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? I want to know if you're real. Today, today I surrender to you and to your truth. Please come into my life and fill me with your spirit and give me the strength to follow your son, Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray, amen.